All right, so let's get to our scripture for this morning. We are in Luke chapter 1. We've been looking at Mary's song. I'm going to read it. The words in gray are the ones that we have already um, looked at. The words in blue are the ones we're covering today, and the white ones we'll get to next week. This is Mary's song. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, just as you sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus, help us to prepare our hearts as well. Show us the distraction in our lives that block us, block our hearts from all-out worship of you this Advent season. Lord, we await your coming. As we celebrate the first Advent, your first coming, we so look forward to the day where we will see you face to face. We can only imagine what it will be like. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us hearts that look for your coming on a daily basis. Please help us to live our lives constantly seeking your presence. Show us today how we need to be refined, purified, forgiven. And give us the strength to receive your forgiveness and to change our ways through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So it's good to see everyone this morning. Um, each week when you get up here, you kind of look out, get a sense of how everybody's week was. Um, I've got to be honest with, you, with me, you guys are really, um, for, for two weeks to go to Christmas, everybody still looks pretty good. So uh, just keep hanging in there. Certainly want to welcome those of you joining us online or if you're checking out a recording of this later on down the road. Um, as you noticed, hopefully, um, we had to lower that sign a little bit, that humble sign in the back. Um, we noticed last week people were starting to slide around the outside, um, and as Tyler pointed out, they'd pretty much just given in. They've just admitted defeat. Um, and we also saw some people that were getting a little cocky. Um, they could walk under that sign without needing to you know, bend their knees or their, their head a little bit. So we lowered it, um, and we'll keep doing that because we want everybody to have this opportunity to humble their hearts in preparation for Christmas, for Jesus' arrival. And as we think about that, Um, We realize that humility is a significant challenge for everyone. It's a lifelong battle, Um, and that's just by virtue of the nature of humility. As we said last week, it's one of those things where, by definition, the moment you think you have it, it's gone. Um, It's also one of those things that we really prize in other people, but we have very little desire to practice ourselves. Um, In fact, I really um, have been convicted even just over the last 24 hours of this. Um, I usually do sprints in the morning before um, church on Sunday. And I do some praying during that time, and I had to really do a lot of praying today because um, 
was a pretty good game yesterday, and we had a pretty good outcome, and how do you stay humble when people are putting stuff like this in your office um, all week long? And, um, and then you win. So, um, so Larry, you can come up and get this later um, if you want, or you can come get it now, you know. It's always a close game. You gotta watch it from year to year. You can get burnt next year. So no push-ups at all, no requirement for push-ups. So in any case, um, humility is clearly a challenge. Um, but then when you put on top of that how the culture that we're in right now is truly one of those where it prizes pride and it rejects humility. I mean, you don't see people posting how screwed up they are on social media. And I actually thought, wouldn't that be cool as a church if we tried that? What if we um, were willing to put things up there like, man, I just got my third speeding ticket in a school zone. I'm such an idiot, right? But can you imagine putting something like on, that on there? Or, yeah, I just broke my nose again. I ran into one of those glass doors at the mall. <laughs> I really got to stop letting myself down like that, right? So, but if you start posting that stuff, people won't know what to do with you. Because these days, it's all about posting our success or our prideful achievements for the whole world to see. I typically call it face paint. And you see it going on all the time. And you'll know when you're doing this, you can catch yourself because you're either with someone who you think is like a good special person to be with, or you're at a special location. And so you kind of stop in your tracks and you pull out your phone and you stick your arm way out and you take a selfie. And if you think about that, what is a selfie? I mean, it is all very selfish, right? It's a, it's a picture that you want to put to show the whole world that you're hanging out with some cool people, hanging out in a cool place, and you want the whole world to know. And when we do that, we're basically being propelled in the wrong direction. Because as we've learned throughout this Advent season, if we actually want to put ourselves in the path of Jesus, if we want our loved ones to experience the true meaning of Christmas, not that Hallmark version, then like Mary, like the nation Israel, we need to focus on this truth that God comes to the humble. The Son of God came to dwell in humility and what the world deems as ordinary, the lowly, and the simple things of life. He did not come to those with status. He didn't come to the prideful religious or governmental authorities. Nope, he came on an ordinary night in an ordinary town to an ordinary peasant woman in an ordinary barn visited by ordinary shepherds. It was a humble arrival for the Messiah who came to usher in his extraordinary kingdom and in so doing, flip our world upside down in what has often been termed the great reversal. And today, Mary sings directly of this great reversal, of how the standards in God's kingdom are opposite that of the world. She sings specifically today, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. You see, our world prizes status, wealth, Pride in human achievement, even at the expense of oppressing other people. But in God's kingdom, the powers that oppress will be deprived of their standing. And those of humble estate, the afflicted, 
the humiliated, the hungry of this world will be exalted. And so as Mary sings of this great reversal, she makes reference to Israel's history, much of what we covered the last two weeks. So check this out. Mary begins this extended stanza we're studying today with, he has shown strength with his arm. And we find language about the strength of God's arm in numerous places in the Old Testament. You see, it's part of Mary's history. It's part of Israel's history, and she knows it well. And likewise, we must all know the history of our faith and know it well, too. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His truth does not change. It's all in step with our past. So in referencing the strength of God's arm here, Mary is pointing to several key Old Testament passages. First, Mary points to one of Isaiah's prophecies about the Messiah coming to redeem God's people, where Isaiah writes, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. If you read the entire passage, Isaiah speaks of a redeemer sent by the strength of God's arm for those who repent. So Mary is singing exactly in step with what Isaiah had prophesied about the Messiah and his role in the great reversal, coming to forgive and save all those who repent, those who humble themselves before Almighty God. She also points to the psalmist who wrote, you crushed Rahab like a carcass, you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Again, the image of God's mighty arm in Israel's past speaks to how God scatters his enemies. And why are they God's enemies? Because they refuse to humble themselves before him. And so God reverses their prideful, elevated position by scattering them with his mighty arm. Mary's reference to the strength of God's arm also points to Israel's battle against Amalek. Recall that Moses went to the top of a hill with God's staff in his hand, so that, as Scripture says, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So when Moses' arms, they grew tired, Aaron and Hur held them up so that Israel would prevail by God's strength. You see, it's by God's strength, his power, that we prevail at anything. It's what ultimately reverses our condition. Just like God did with Israel, his mighty arm is what pulls us up out of the pit, out of those ruins, out of the ashes of despair in our lives whenever we humble ourselves before him. And this is where we must pause for a moment to remind ourselves of a truth that we've seen over and over again. We saw it in the Sermon on the Mount. We're seeing it as we study the book of Ephesians, that this is God's world and he wants things done his way, not ours. We've used this quote from J. Vernon McGee several times. It's God's universe and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. You see, scripture, Psalm 19 in particular, tells us that God created the cosmos for a purpose to declare his glory, and that's it. And so when we do things for our glory, or take credit for God's glory, or fail to admit the true source of our strength, we're essentially playing the game in a way that was not designed by God to be played. 
Now, there's, of course, nothing wrong with achieving success, making money, or serving in key leadership roles. We were created to do all those things by God, too. But we're to use them for God's glory, not to bring us glory. C.S. Lewis writes that the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride, seeking one's own glory. That's what caused the devil to fall from heaven, and it's what lies at the foundation of all sin. Because when we live in pride for our own glory, we're completely out of step with the way God designed it. Perhaps think of it this way. If you want to succeed at the game of basketball, you got to play by the rules. You can't foul too much or you're going to be on the bench. You can't dribble out of bounds or it's a turnover and the ball goes to the other team. Why? Because that's how James Naismith designed the game. Even if God has gifted you with as much talent as Michael Jordan, if you don't play by the rules, you end up losing the game. Well, the game of life is no different. You've got to play by the rules, God's rules, the way he designed it for his glory. So when we play the game of life for our glory, we can expect God, by the strength of his arm, to reverse things. And that's essentially what the great reversal is all about. God setting things in step with the way he designed them to be. And then Mary gives us three concrete examples of what this great reversal looks like. First, she sings, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Again, the language Mary uses harkens back to an often overlooked but pivotal moment in our faith history. Recall around 3000 BC, God flooded the earth to eradicate sin, and then he makes this covenant with Noah. And he promises that never again would he send a flood to destroy the earth. Well, about 800 years later, man is populating the earth, and Genesis 11 records, they all had one language, and they decided, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. And so they gathered in Babel to build a monument to themselves, celebrating their own glory instead of God's glory. And in response, the Lord said, let us confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And then the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth before they could finish building the city and the tower. So that between their geographic and their language differences, it would be harder for them to unite in rebellion against God. You see, God scatters the proud, but not just because of their prideful actions. He also does so because of the pride in their hearts. And why is that? Because that is where pride originates. And while we see the manifestation of pride everywhere throughout our tangible lives, it all starts with a proud heart. It's what causes us to desire to seek our own glory over God's glory, or maybe to show favoritism to somebody, or to despise our neighbor. It's pride that causes us to oppress rather than love others, not playing the game the way God designed it to be played. And that's why God reverses the situation. He scatters the proud. So this is a call for us this week to check ourselves, to ask, seek, and knock for God to help us with the pride in our hearts. Because it's so easy to kind of clean up the exterior, put that face paint on, 
make it seem like we really don't have prideful issues. But if we're honest with ourselves, they reside at the root of our existence, at our hearts. Second, Mary sings, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And so as we look back over the history of our faith, we see this happening again and again. Take, for example, when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, oppressed by Pharaoh. So you got Pharaoh up here, and you got Egypt, or you got um, Israel enslaved in Egypt. And God sends a series of these plagues, from frogs to boils to locusts, 10 of them in all, to bring down Pharaoh from his throne to humble him. And then God facilitates a mad dash through the Red Sea to exalt Israel from their humble and oppressed state. This is an example of the great reversal in action, bringing down the proud and exalting the humble. Again, we see it when Joshua led a weary Israel into the promised land after they'd been humbled for 40 years in the desert. Kingdom after kingdom, throne after throne, brought down by God's mighty arm. In his great reversal, God granted his chosen nation Israel remarkable success against overwhelming odds, sometimes by simply just having them walk around the city seven times for the walls to collapse, as in Jericho. You see, in the great reversal, God brings down the mighty from their thrones, those mighty worldly rulers driven by the pride in their hearts, exerting power based on their own authority. But that's just simply not how God designed it. Everything in the world was designed to operate under his authority. And so that's how the game of life must be played, his way, for his glory alone. So now, how often, when we're placed in positions of authority, do we immediately allow it to go to our heads, concluding that we're pretty special people, better than others? Why else would we have been placed in charge? That pride in our hearts caused us to lean on our own might, often causing us to look down on others, to consider them as beneath us, just ordinary folk, when compared to our extraordinary status, often even resulting in them having to experience humiliation. And if we're honest, we've all been there. We've been on both sides of it. We have sort of oppressed other people, humiliated them, and we too have been humiliated and oppressed by others. But in God's great reversal, he exalts those of humble estate returning them to the way he created them, with value, with purpose, their identity in Christ, all to bring him glory. And all the while, he takes down the mighty from the thrones. And so often, they're just thrones of their own making anyway. And third, finally, Mary sings, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Here, Mary contrasts the hungry or the poor with the rich, essentially addressing this issue of dependence. And it's kind of tricky because when you think about wealth, it seems to all be relative to where you live and the people around you, so we have to keep that in mind too. In the first half of this verse, Mary sings of God filling the hungry with good things. And once again, Mary's words evoke Old Testament language that she would most likely have committed to memory. Back in those days, there were very few copies of Scripture. It was read to the Jews at the temple, and they committed it to memory. So Mary remembered what the psalmist had written. 
for he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. In addition to referencing a ton of Old Testament teachings, Mary's song also serves as a bridge of sorts to the gospel message. Recall that it's recorded in the first chapter of Luke, and it foreshadows much of Luke's gospel, which often addresses the poor and the hungry. For example, in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, he records Jesus teaching, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. So what are those good things that satisfy? Well, we have the advantage of being on this side of the cross, but let's stop for a minute to think about it from Mary's perspective. She's just learned she will bear the long-awaited Messiah in her womb, meaning he will be in her as she carries him to term. She will be literally filled with the Son of God. That's why we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, because Emmanuel means God with us, which of course is foreshadowing Jesus indwelling his people by the power of the Holy Spirit for those who humble themselves before God, repenting of their sin and placing their faith in him. So as Mary's language here grabs a promise from the past and unites it to fulfillment in the future. As she sings of being filled with the good things, being filled with Jesus, the Son of God, indwelling his people. And of course, for the latter half of this verse, and the rich he has sent away empty. So why does God deal so harshly with the rich? Well, again, this teaching is more about dependence than it is about wealth, because the rich are prone to lose their dependence on God and turn instead in pride to depend on their own wealth. So to be clear, this is not a blanket indictment against the wealthy. Rather, it should be seen as a warning for those who've been blessed with wealth not to let it go to their heads. Now, Dr. Luke, who records the Magnificat, is understood to be a close friend of the Apostle Paul. They share an identical theology in Christ. And in Paul's first letter to Timothy, look at what he writes. As for the rich, the very people Mary's singing about, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches the dependent piece, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Isn't that good? I love how it ends so that we may take hold of that which is truly life, the way God designed it, where we live in the truth that everything we have came from him. Our talents, our treasure, our time, our family, everything came from God. And so to God goes all the glory. That's truly life as God designed it. And when we live that way, we bring him glory, and he in turn exalts us. But when we live in pride for our own glory, we end up on the wrong side of that great reversal. So what is our response to confronting this great reversal? Well, again this week and throughout all of Advent, we're going to receive the sacrament of communion together. And communion is for all those who have placed their faith 
in Jesus Christ. And of course, Paul encourages us to examine ourselves before we receive the elements. So as we gather at the foot of the cross today, let's examine our position with regard to God's great reversal. Since we know that God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, what pride resides in our hearts this morning? Since God brings down the mighty from their thrones, what thrones do we sit on this morning? Since God exalts those of humble estate, do we live humbly before Almighty God with a healthy fear of Him? Since God fills the hungry with good things, are we hungry to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith? The very thing we celebrate when we receive communion together. And of course, since God sends the rich away empty, is our dependence on our wealth, on our status, is our, or is our dependence on him? And I know that's a lot for us to consider, so we've got a timer up here today. We're going to go ahead and take a good five minutes to ponder this quest, these questions in the quiet of our hearts. Amen.